Hi, I'm Terry, Instagram's sassy sober mum. Welcome to my podcast, Sober Stories from Everyday People, bringing you stories from people just like you and I. The aim of this podcast is to share our experiences with drinking and how we got and stayed successfully sober. Hello and welcome to Sober Stories from Everyday People. Today is the first guest on the show, so it's very exciting. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing Catherine from Brisbane, all the way in Australia. And she's here to share her story by answering the seven questions about alcohol and sobriety. Catherine actually has 120 days of sobriety, which is four months today, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, So well done, Catherine. And what a way to celebrate coming on this podcast. So thank you you so so much, much. Terry. Ah, Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. And um, yeah, let's get started. So please, can you tell me a little bit about yourself so that we can get to know you? Sure. Um, So I've lived in Brisbane my whole life, Um, lived here, studied here. Um, For the last 10 years, I've been working in the higher education system um, for university and um, working and studying at the same time. So I would teach students as well as undertake my own uh, postgraduate work um, and earned my PhD in media and cultural studies Um, outside of work and study I play football or soccer to the folks outside of uh, the UK I'm a goalkeeper so I guess that takes a a special kind of crazy to uh, launch myself in front of um, all sorts of madness coming in from the strikers Um, I've played that at a semi-competitive level both uh, indoor futsal as well as outdoor and yeah I'm 31 this year so to be still doing that I'm really grateful that the body's held up um really interesting or maybe I hope it's an interesting fact I'm an only child as well and I think that does play a role in shaping my story um you know I love my mum and dad to bits but I I do wonder sometimes what it would have been like um having a brother or sister there alongside me um I have two guinea pigs um, I'm a big fan also of Lady Pigford on Instagram. I hope she's listening. Um, yeah, and I have a really beautiful group of friends, um, whether I've met them through football, work, um, school, you know, really, really blessed, I think. Um, and I'm so glad that I get to talk to you today and hopefully get to give back to some of those people who've been with me through the highs and lows. Oh, that's fantastic. A goalkeeper, that is amazing. I had no idea. It's a wild time. <laughs> Absolutely. So describe to me what your what was your life like with alcohol? Describe what that looked like. It started off um, in quite an unremarkable kind of way. I, I think compared with perhaps other people uh, who have experienced um, a problematic relationship with alcohol I think I actually started drinking perhaps a little bit later um you know 16 17 towards the very end of high school uh and I think until my mid-20s 
that drinking wouldn't have been considered problematic in any way. It was the normal sort of going to parties, everyone turning 18, 21, um, you know, being young, springy, bouncing back, that kind of thing. It wasn't until my mid-20s that drinking started to cause uh, some problems for myself, uh, for my friendships and relationships, and it then still took, you know, at least five or six years for me to really work at addressing it. And as you said in the intro, I'm celebrating 120 days today. So, you know, there was still quite a few years before that where I was still drinking, even though it was causing me a lot of problems. I would say my drinking was unpredictable. Sometimes it could be I could go out and have, you know, a couple of beers with dinner and it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but other times there there was no stopping me. I'd be on a tear and I wouldn't know how that was going to play out and it's one thing for me to not know how that was going to play out but then for the people I was with you know that that creates real problems so it could be really chaotic as well which yeah really you know looking back now I I say is really unfair on some of the people that I really love and care about um so yeah it took a long time for that to really sink in that the only way for me to be the person I want to be would be to be me without alcohol. Mm. Yeah, I, I I really relate to um, when you were saying about it being unpredictable. I found that as well. Um, I would not always drink, even every week, um, and certainly when I was sort of in my late teens and twenties. It wouldn't be necessarily every week uh, and sometimes it would be okay and sometimes it would be really fun but then other times it would be sometimes dark and unpredictable and those were the times that I don't know about you but they really frightened me um, and like you say as well I think that's really nice that you sort of recognize that you were probably a bit of a handful <laughs> with friends most definitely I I always say I I I I drank like somebody was taking me home you know that there would always be somebody there to sort of make sure that I got into a taxi or that would just sort of deal with me um which is quite irresponsible really um so I'm quite interested in obviously you said you, you you work in soccer football um what's the culture like in Australia around that you know is it is it a heavy drinking culture in or or people quite disciplined how has that sort of influenced what you drank I think it can vary across clubs teams the level that you play at I play at a level where they don't necessarily monitor how much you drink but I did have a reputation around the team for being a big drinker um and not just a party drinker would always be oh yeah cats had a few sort of thing. Um, I was relatively good in not drinking night before a game and things like that, but obviously I was carrying extra weight. Um, Even as a goalkeeper, you have to be somewhat fit because you're, I call it burpee fitness, like you've got to be down and up and down and up sort of thing. So, you know, carrying that extra weight, you know, basically holding myself back through alcohol wasn't productive. Um, When we won things, we obviously went out and celebrated and I think 
I do recall some instances of me being um, out there. I I did cause some issues at end of year last year. I wasn't supposed to be drinking at all because I had a concussion. I was recovering from a concussion. Um, and I, I said I would just have one. Mm. But the one that I brought ended up being like a, a can of cider that was about two and a half standard drinks. And then after that, there was, there was no putting that back in the cage. Uh, I got myself in a lot of trouble that evening and, and made things uncomfortable for people. Um, no one else in the team, I don't think, has really ever expressed to me that they have a problem to the extent that I did. Uh, but the the team, like when you do things in a team sport and a team environment, the girls have been, and my coach, everyone's been, you know, totally around me. Uh, and even at my new job as well, I've actually left academia now after 10 years. I work in an agency now as a, as a writer. Um, and I've, I've told a few people that I'm sober and there's a really, really great culture of respect that they respect I don't drink and I respect that they do. Mm. And it's, it's, I've been really lucky in that respect because you do see a lot of stories online of people being like, why don't you just have one? Why don't you, you know? But no, I've been really lucky in my experience that folks have been super understanding, super supportive. So for, for people out there listening, if, if you feel that the folks you're around aren't necessarily supporting you, just know that there are people like us out there who will have your back. Oh, I think that's lovely. And that's that's actually really refreshing to hear that. Um, yeah, really refreshing. And, and I'm so pleased that you had that experience. So what point did you recognise it was problematic? When Talk through the, the reasons why you basically got to the point where you gave up. As I said, that's, that's a story over a few years. Uh, I think it started around 2015. I was... I turned 24 that year. Uh, I was partway through my PhD. The, the PhDs are meant to take here three years. Mine ended up taking seven. Um, what what I kind of felt was I was not really accepting that I had some problems around my identity and sexuality, being a woman who dates women, um, so still semi-closeted, but everyone could kind of see it. Um so not necessarily dealing with those feelings in a healthy way, dealings with the pressures of postgraduate study and also starting to experience problems with generalised anxiety. Uh, I struggled flying, even though I'm not scared of flying. I struggled catching a bus to work. I struggled getting in my car and, and driving onto the motorway. You'd approach this sort of on-ramp and and panic and just tears. Um so that kind of stew of problems are built up over a period of, say, two years. And in June uh, 2017, so it's coming up to, to five years to the day, I landed myself um, in an inpatient um, mental health ward and I was there for a period of about two, two weeks. And then I had another stint of about a week in October of that year um, so it's a situation some folks might be familiar with it called dual diagnosis, where you have mental health conditions interacting with substance problems or substance misuse. And so obviously I had anxiety and depression and that was interacting with, uh, the alcohol and it's, it's a real 
pardon the cliche, it's a real chicken and the egg kind of deal. You don't know what's causing what mm. or if there's any sort of causation or if they're just kind of playing together. Um, I then pursued about a year of outpatient treatment where I saw a psychologist pretty much every week or every two weeks and did a course of um, CBT and DBT, which helped um, teach me coping strategies because, you know, a part of my problem was being an only child. Um, I didn't get to see a lot of that in action, not seeing other people working through problems or things not going their way, um, not having siblings around me to kind of see that all the time and having that kind of guidance, I, yeah, kind of and was learning that as someone who was 24, 25 and having a really hard time. Uh, a really fantastic thing that that psychologist did was put me in touch with a dual diagnosis counsellor within the same service. And she was lovely, but she probably did ask me at some point, you know, have you considered stopping? And I go, oh, I don't think I need to because, again, it's that age-old conception of, of the alcoholic being the paper bag person mm. with nowhere to go and, and nothing, to, you know, to be looking forward to. But I was a person with the whole world at my feet and I still, I still couldn't see that alcohol was holding me back. Um, so I feel I don't want to say that that was a lost opportunity for me. Like I obviously was more mindful about alcohol, but it, it, that experience, if it taught me anything, was that I cannot moderate. Mm. We would work through those strategies of have a drink of water in between or, you know, you know stick to one standard drink kind of things, you know, and it just, it just doesn't work. No. Well, not for me because you'd have a couple of beers, you go, I feel fine, I don't need a glass yeah. of water in between. No, it's great. That it's that fine. That yeah. So that that's yeah. And even then, so 2017, and then and then it's like still five years later that I, I finally pulled the pin and go, no more. You you really have to, in your own head, come to the conclusion that your life is better without alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, there's so much to unpack there. Um, so what was quite interesting when you were seeing the different specialists, um, you did mention that one lady said, have you considered stopping drinking? Was that the only time that sort of medical professionals, if you like, had made that connection or were there, were there other people that had made that connection? Because I, I think that's something that also really needs to improve. I think at, at the moment there, are, there is a disconnect particularly still between mental health and, and alcohol and just, yeah, the role that alcohol plays when it comes to things like anxiety. I do think that we need to lift the lid on that and go deeper. And I would love, you know, in 10, 20 years when my children are adults, that that is just common practice that, you know, general practitioners would be speaking to people that have have issues of whatever kind, whether whether they're physical or mental, and trying to understand the relationship of substance use or, or, or drinking. So is that the first, is that the only time that you had that bit of advice or? To be fair, I think the problem here is I don't remember if she, I'm sure she would have definitely said it. I don't remember 
if other people have said it to me, I don't remember those specific instances because it was so far off my radar that it was something I really needed to consider. Yeah. If that makes sense. Does that yeah. make sense? It, no, it, it really was, does. Yeah, yeah. It, it really does. And I'm I, so hell-bent that I don't have a problem. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, that it's really one of the last things that we look at, if we even get there, right? Because I do think that there are maybe people, you know, sadly in some ways that go through life um, having to cope with different challenges or, you know, issues of mental health, but yet they're still sort of drinking on a Friday or drinking alcohol and, and just not they don't have the education so it's not it's not judging the people that are drinking that that's not the point here it's just I I know that I find it frustrating that there just isn't that information that readily available that we don't we don't question it I was exactly the same I I, I was just like you I, I I drank you know for another 10 years before my first stint of sobriety <laughs> and I just didn't question it enough because I did, didn't get access to information. I didn't. I wasn't able to join up the dots myself. Um, and I think it takes a really, really strong um, person to be able to do that. You know, I, I, I don't think that is a default behaviour to be able to come to that conclusion because we live in a society where alcohol fixes everything and that's what we're taught and that's what people are doing around us and that's what maybe our parents did um and to an extent you know the people that we rely on to help guide us in life you know everybody's kind of drinking and and in our eyes drinking in moderation (laughs) so you know we just feel like the problem is is ours really um so um yeah, so what what was the point when you just what was there a moment where you just woke up and thought, right, that's it, I have to stop? There was definitely a point where I woke up and go, that's enough, I'm done. But funnily enough, I would not consider that moment a rock bottom. Yeah. There would have been a whole bunch of other times before that where I've gone, I've ended up in way worse situations that any other person looking in would have gone, mate, that's rock bottom. You need to call it here. And I didn't stop there. I stopped over the most trivial sort of thing. Um, I was enjoying some frozen margaritas for a friend's birthday. And then I messaged someone and they messaged me back with something I didn't quite like. And so I just sort of messaged them back and given them what for. And then I've woken, I've woken up the next day and gone, if I'm going to tell someone how I really feel, I want to be articulate about it next time we're done here. And that was kind of me. I know I had to hang my hat on something really stupid, but that was it. And I was like, if that's going to be it, I'll be grateful for it. Um, and so I messaged someone who is now a terrific friend. Her name's Kim because I'd known that she was very much like me. She's a friend of a friend at the time. And I just sent her a message on Instagram and I was like, hey, sis, what's that app you're using? Because I'd seen that she'd been posting her days. And I said, sis, what's what's the name of that app? Um, I'm thinking about, you know, stopping. And she goes, that's fantastic. Um, This is the app. Um, I've read this book that I really love. I'm happy to loan it to you. And the the one thing that really stuck with me, she goes, don't worry, I'm not going to tell anyone just yet. Wait until you're really sure. And just that kind of taking me under a wing and saying, I've got your back. You know, I know we've got mutual friends. I'm not going to share around your news. 
you look after you and I'll be here if you need it. And that made a world of difference and just, you know, I didn't really know Kim at that point. I just knew that she she was someone who was sober and loving life being sober. And, yeah, that was probably the most important message I'd sent in this whole 120 days was just asking her about an app. Wow. Oh, that's so nice, isn't it? And that leads lovely, actually, onto um, how did you get sober? So you reached out to Kim and you got some reassurance, which is just so nice to hear. What else did you do? Even before I realised I was done, I had had these background feelings of being interested in Quitlet. So I'd read most of the big ones. but my favourite, I think, that I've read during my period of sobriety is Claire Pooley's book, The Sober Diaries. That's my absolute number one favourite. Um, so Quitlet podcast really started getting to it. I found you very early on in my sobriety. Your Instagram was just kicking off and, um, you know, thanks to the the Instagram algorithm gods, uh, <laughs> I found your your account and your story. And, and you know, you've been a terrific touch point for me in my sobriety so that idea of being really immersed in other people and their stories something really interesting I've noticed in my in my sort of habits though around my sober literature or sober media is that in the beginning I wanted to hear everyone's rock bottom stories I wanted to hear everyone's you know they'd gone out got trash made an ass of themselves all that kind of gear but as I've gone on I've really started looking more at the strategies and the practical sort of help. Um, Melissa Rice, her book, Sobering, the second half of that book is is fantastic in that respect. Um, yeah, I, I've been really amazed at kind of just how my transformation has kind of occurred. Um, it's been it's been a really pleasant surprise. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I love that. You, I do feel like you go through different dimensions when you go through sobriety. Um, and I really relate to, in the beginning, I was also so hungry for stories. Uh, I, I just, I took so much comfort in hearing other people's stories. And that's kind of really what this podcast is all about, it, is to just help share stories. Because I, I've certainly seen on the, the Instagram feed, the number of people that that comment or write messages and they're just so surprised that I'm just a normal person just like you Catherine you're just a normal person and that's what people relate to normal people that just you know go through similar things and make decisions to get sober and yeah it's just it's inspiring isn't it for people um so yeah, that's fantastic. So you mentioned a couple of books there. I've not read that sobering, actually. I have seen that pop up, so I'm quite intrigued by that. Um, it's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. I do recommend. Yeah, and I'll have to check that out. So, um, well, you're 120 days in, but could you describe the first 100 days, things that you noticed? I I found that in – or I have found over the, the first 100 days and then some – that putting down the drink wasn't hard, but, and I've done it before. I've done, you know, that dry July, February, whatever it might be. I could do a challenge in the, in the office back in, when I was doing my PhD, we would do Lent. None of us were practicing Catholics, but we would do Lent. 
So I would do alcohol to show, hey, I can I can stop. It doesn't, you know, but I would still be looking forward to that that beer at the end. Yeah. This time I was quite quite confident that no, I don't need this anymore. And my whole mindset had really changed. I knew that it wasn't worth it. Uh, I'd, I'd read and seen all the things about moderation and, you know, and I'd said to Kim and Kim goes, that was so true. I said, we're all or nothing people. We we get drunk 100%. We get sober 100%. There's there's no in between. <laughs> Do you feel that? That? <laughs> I have, that is exactly what I'm like as well. <laughs> so I figured I was quite happy to throw myself into it. Um, and that was the real difference. I wasn't waiting for the for the beer at the end because there is no beer at the end for me, mm-hmm. I hope. Yeah. Um, but it sounds, it sounds real. I'm sorry, guys, it sounds real mushy, but I, my world in this 120 days has opened up. I left a, a profession that I thought I'd be in forever and got a new job that I, I never really saw myself in a job out in industry, but I was really struggling to get full-time employment in academia. I, and to be able to go out there and and get a job where I'm thriving, I'm learning, has been fantastic. Um, you know, I'm at the start of a, a lovely relationship, which is which is brilliant. I feel like my connections with my friends have gotten so much better. I have had the 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 wild sort of mood swings and weird emotional outbursts, and I've I've recognised those, and you know, I just talk to my friends about it and. You know, I apologise and I was like, whoop, just having a moment. Um, just give me a hot minute, I'll be okay. But, you know, it's better to have that sort of momentary outburst than go on an absolute, you know, adventure yeah. that you don't know where it's going to end up. Are you going to end up in hospital? Are you going to hurt someone? Are you going to do something real silly? So that momentary outburst totally worth it. I've definitely had the sugar cravings that everyone talks about. I think on Easter weekend I had been baked a cake because I was transitioning jobs then and someone had baked me a cake for my going away. And I had a slice of cake for breakfast every day of the Easter long weekend. So, Sounds amazing. I guess it's better than a, bu- <laughs> better than a Bucks fizz, right? So This is my was, kind of breakfast. I was, <laughs> I was quite happy. It's, it was delightful chocolate cake too, just, oh, in, just in case everyone's wondering. So it, I had, I've had all the the ups and downs of it but on the whole when you look at it the the pros you know my life is I could not have imagined my life had I still been drinking I I would not have been able to do this yeah do you know it's interesting um I love that when you said putting down the drink is the easiest bit um because it really is isn't it actually it's all the emotional side of it, isn't it? That's the really tricky bit. It's the emotional work that you have to do that follows that can be the bit that's really daunting, sometimes can feel really, really hard. Um, you mentioned the word mindset and I, I'm just, I'm such a big fan of, of this word. I think mindset is so key in everything. Um could you describe what when you talk about mindset and that you'd got to that mindset where you just you knew you weren't going to pick up that beer? Um, how did you get to that place just to expand on that? Because I think that's something that people can struggle with a bit. You know, people throw around that word mindset. I do quite a lot on my feed. But how did how did you achieve this strong mindset, this internal knowing 
that you were on this path now and that you were going to kind of do everything you could to keep yourself there? I think it's definitely, I've mentioned, you know, my friends, my family, people who are important to me, and that's what's driving my mindset. I know I know your sobriety has to be for yourself, and it is for me. I guess it's a cyclical thing and that I have had people leave my life because of things I've done while I've been drinking, um, and I don't want to be sitting around in, in a few decades' time with no one, with no one around me. I'm very grateful um, that the folks who have stayed have stayed. And pardon me being a bit emotional about it, but yeah, I'm thinking about the person that I want to be and and the person that the folks in my life deserve. Um, and so for me, then it's it's like a light switch. Once I, I knew that that was what I cared about. Not that I didn't care before, but now that I really know that this is what I want, um, I'm doggedly determined to to fulfil that promise I, I've made to myself and to, to those people by extension. Oh, I think I think that's really courageous, really brave, and you have some very lucky friends to have you. <laughs> um. So what was the hardest bit? I know you mentioned the mood swings could come and go. I, I totally relate to that. Um, it can feel like a bit of a yo-yo, can't it, emotionally? Um, I remember an advert on the TV would make me cry. Um, so <laughs> what was the hardest part for you in getting sober and let's say in the last sort of 100, 120 days? Well, it seems quite funny. So I went to a wedding recently and they had a four-hour drink package and towards the end of the drinks package, all the boys at my table were going up to the bar and bringing back four, five, six beers at a time. One one fella even plonked a, a whole bottle of wine down on the table in front of me and I was quite all right and got up and got another piece of wedding cake and a cup of tea. Um, but the thing that actually makes life really hard are the dreams the relapse dreams and I know that this is another thing that gets spoken about a lot in the sober community so it seems really wild that you know I can have the actual lived thing in front of me and be fine but it's the dreams that I find really hard it doesn't feel like 120 days because I've had quite a few drinks in my dreams yeah (laughs) or I won't even I won't even have the drink in the dream I've had the dream where I've woken up in a hospital and then someone's shown me a photo and there's not even alcohol in the photo but I know I've been drinking if that makes sense I yeah it's just the whole experience is is so bound up in my in my subconscious yeah that, yeah I, I don't feel like it's been 120 days in some respects yeah those dreams are so haunting aren't they <laughs> I, re- I remember when I had my first relapse dream it was so realistic um and I I just it took me a few minutes I was really disorientated actually I was thinking why would I have broken I've been doing so well what I'm so stupid and you know and then it sort of dawned on me no this isn't real (laughs) this is a dream 
it's yeah I mean for me personally that did fade um and and I haven't had a dream like that in well years now so it must be something that happens in the first few months maybe a year I don't know I, I guess I'll find out when I'm interviewing other people but it is it is bizarre and it is haunting is the right word um, yes, yes. <laughs> okay so what would you say has been your biggest gain in sobriety I know you've talked through some some really really positive things um but what's your biggest gain in sobriety certainty certainty I'm the person that's going to show up I'm the person that's going to follow through on what they say they're going to do I'm the person that will meet you for the for the sunrise hike. I'm going to be the person that shows up to breakfast and isn't just drowning themselves in a big cup of coffee or or you know a, a sports drink or something. I'm I'm going to be present and that sense of certainty is is so reassuring, it's so comforting. Uh and yeah, just grab every day with two hands now. Oh, I love, I really love that so much. I, yeah, I really feel that in my bones when you said that. I just think, yeah, that is exactly how I feel. And I think that that links really nicely to what you were saying in the beginning. You, you know, you, you just couldn't trust yourself. It was unpredictable, the drinking life, but essentially you couldn't trust yourself. I couldn't trust myself. Um, and just not having that hanging over me anymore, it just builds so much self-esteem and self-confidence. And like you say, knowing who's going to show up, you just know the version of yourself really well. And you know that that person's always going to be there at the party or like you say, at the sunrise hike. And I just, I think that's just so lovely that, you know, it's, it's, it's simple, and um, maybe people that have not been through a challenge with drinking and have got to this point, maybe they don't understand. But the simplicity of that, just knowing who you are and knowing that you're going to show up and that you trust yourself is really everything, I think, in life. It's what it's about. It's, what it's makes so it. liberating. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think that's really beautiful. Okay, so we're coming towards the end. I can't believe how quickly it's going. Um, so what are your top three tips on getting or staying sober? It's going to sound a bit AA and I have absolutely nothing against AA. Actually, if I can't do a very good American accent, but that television show Mom starring Anna Faris and Alison Janney is for anyone going through sobriety or who thinks who doesn't know what sobriety might be like or you're worried about being boring, watch Mom because it's fantastic, but that's a side note. Um, but trust that the universe will get you to where you need to go. Getting sober is just sort of putting yourself in the right direction. It relates to the AA idea, I guess, of the higher power, and I don't know that I necessarily identify with that aspect, so I, I kind of trust in this idea of the universe as my higher power. Um, and it also ties in with this idea of making your own luck. When I was coming to the end of my undergraduate studies and looking what I was going to do for my postgraduate work, I was really good at this. I was out there just talking to people, 
uh, talking to different academics on campus. I made my luck. I made my opportunities. I got the spots in the postgraduate program that I wanted. I got scholarships that I needed. Life moved forward. Once you start getting sober and, and putting in that work, um, the world will start opening up. It may be slow at first. I've been very lucky with the way my 120 days so far have panned out. But I trust that if you set your heading on sobriety, focus on doing those little things for yourself, the universe will start to take over and the good things will snowball. That's my first bit. My second bit is just being immersed. Um, you know, we've spoken a bit about the quit lit, uh, the social media, these kinds of things. There are people like yourself, Terry, who are out there sharing so much stuff that illustrates, paints this beautiful, vivid picture to the world of how lovely sobriety is, how much we can treasure those simple things in life. So for anyone questioning, just start immersing yourself and maybe that will, will, will help bring you around to see that you can make a different decision for yourself. And my third big thing is community. And again, this is something I've been really lucky with in having people like Kim and having my teammates, my friends, my colleagues being very supportive of what I've done and what I'm trying to do. Uh, if you don't have that community in person in your existing friendship groups or family circles, programs like AA or looking online for pages like, like yours, Terry, or all the other sort of uh, sober pages online, they're great places to start because we're people who have all walked the same path. You know, we, we all have these themes that, kind of relate back, whether it's the sugar cravings, the mood swings, all of that kind of stuff. But our, our stories all have a different flavour. Uh, you may relate to some people more than others. It's just about finding community out there and surrounding yourself with a lot of love uh, because it does it does take it out of you to to make this decision in some ways. You know, it's it's a big thing to leave behind part of what may have been such a big part of your life for, for quite a long time. But there are people to show you that once you get sober, it's just the start of something a lot better. Oh, I think they're amazing. Really, really good tips. Love those. Um, so if you're open to sharing, um, how can people find you or follow your journey? Uh, so I'm on Instagram. My handle is at Turk dot bird so it's derived from um an old football nickname they used to call me turkey i really appreciate it and you're my first guest and you're celebrating four months today so <laughs> huge congratulations uh so thank you so much <laughs> so until next time everybody take care thank you thank you so much for listening to this podcast if you're interested in being a guest, please contact me directly on Instagram by sending a message to at Sassy Sober Mum. You can also find helpful tools and resources on my website, sassysobermum.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to spread the love, please like, share and rate the podcast. 
I really look forward to next time. See you then.